Hello and welcome to Deep North, the official podcast of Ice and Review. Today we'll be speaking to staff writer Yelena Chirich, and she'll be reading her article, A Wealth of Water, on the implementation of uh, the Water Framework Directive in Iceland. And uh, afterwards, we'll be having a conversation about the article. Close your eyes and picture Iceland. What comes to mind? A powerful waterfall streaming down a cliffside. Bluish icebergs floating in a glacier lagoon. A hulking jeep fording a highland river. Or maybe a steaming hot spring or a neighborhood swimming pool. Whichever image is most evocative of Iceland for you, there's one thing they all have in common. Water. Water, particularly fresh water, is an undeniable part of Iceland's image and is one of its most abundant resources. This abundance makes it easy for locals to take water for granted, but it is something many visitors to the island notice. Tourists in Iceland rave about how great the tap water tastes and are surprised to learn that hikers sometimes even fill their water bottles in streams, though the expert we spoke to recommended against drinking untreated surface water. The popularity of Icelandic water is also growing abroad. Icelandic Glacial, a company that bottles and sells Icelandic spring water, was recently declared the single most valuable Icelandic brand. Iceland is one of the wealthiest countries in the world when it comes to fresh water per capita, with an estimated 600,000 meters cubed available per person per year. Even more remarkably, about 95% of Iceland's drinking water is groundwater, most of it untreated. This groundwater is extracted from springs, wells, or boreholes. While Iceland has had legislation on water use and protection for decades, it wasn't until last year that the country approved its first River Basin Management Plan, RBMP, in accordance with the European Water Framework Directive, the WFD. The RBMP is a six-year strategy for sustainably managing the country's water use and protecting this essential resource. Marianne Jens Dotterfjeld, a biologist at the Environment Agency of Iceland, is the project manager for the implementation of the Water Framework Directive in Iceland. Her work is extensive, to say the least. Water is everywhere, in different forms, and we're all working with water in different ways, she says. The biggest challenge is how many parties are involved, municipalities, government agencies, businesses, to get everyone into the same boat and sailing in the same direction, and for everyone to know where we're heading. The boon of having a lot of water per capita in Iceland also comes with a downside, a shortage of people and funding to evaluate and monitor the massive resource. As Iceland's first river basin management plan points out, monitoring every single body of water in Iceland is an impossible task. This means that while Marianne and her team were able to assess that most of Iceland's surface water is in good status or high status, those assessments are often based on modeling rather than data collected at each location. If we have a body of water with no human activity or influence near it, for example, we can consider it likely that it's in good or high status according to the data we have, she explains. But of course, there are a lot of bodies of water that we don't know about and that are a question mark. We're always lacking data in order to confirm that our evaluations are in fact correct. On July 28, 2010, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a historical resolution recognizing, quote, the right to safe and clean drinking water and sanitation as a human right that is essential for the full enjoyment of life and all human rights. 
In order to facilitate the management of this huge fluid resource, Iceland's RBMP breaks it down into smaller sections called Vasslot, a term that can be loosely translated as a body of water. A Vasslot is an administrative entity. It could be one lake or part of a river, for example, the section between the ocean until the first confluence. According to the directive, each body of water has an environmental objective, and it has to fulfill that objective, Marianne explains. That means that someone doing construction, for example, has to consider which bodies of water am I working near or on or in. They have to evaluate the environmental impact of the construction and whether the environmental objectives for that body of water will be met or not. These bodies of water range greatly in size. As Marianne says, sometimes we're working with a body of water that is very large and is used by many different parties. Businesses are usually good at monitoring their own use and impact but often it's the combined impact of all the users that matters, and monitoring that is a challenge. This can be particularly difficult in the case of groundwater, which tends to have more users and more parties responsible for its management than, say, a stretch of ocean along the coastline, Marianne points out. The National Energy Authority, the Food and Veterinary Authority, the Municipal Public Health Authorities, and the Icelandic Met Office are just some of the organizations involved in monitoring groundwater. 95%. The proportion of Iceland's drinking water that is untreated groundwater extracted from springs, wells, or boreholes. While Iceland's drinking water is generally safe, waterborne disease outbreaks do occur. Dr. Maria J. Gunnarsdottir, a senior researcher at the University of Iceland in water regulation and management, found that the size of water supplies was a leading factor in the risk of outbreaks. During the two decades between 1998 and 2017, there were 15 registered waterborne outbreaks in Iceland affecting 8,000 people and leading to over 500 registered illnesses. All of them occurred in small water supplies. While 94% of Iceland's population gets their drinking water from 82 municipally run water facilities, there are also a whopping 800 regulated user-owned or cooperative small water supplies and a large number of very small, unregulated water supplies serving the remaining 6% of the population, including transient populations such as those at cabins or tourist sites. Tourism has become extensive in Iceland and tourists use a huge proportion of drinking water in Iceland compared to most other countries, Maria explains. And data shows that the quality of drinking water at tourist destinations is considerably worse than at locations that do not serve as many tourists. As a member of the European Economic Area, Iceland adheres to the European Union Drinking Water Directive. When it comes to determining how often a water source needs to be inspected, the directive is somewhat open. You can go by average water use per day or number of residents, Maria explains. And in Iceland, we've chosen to go by the number of residents. Inspections are required more often in places with more residents. But if you think about a site like Gaysid, for example, Maybe only a handful of people live there, but thousands visit the site every day. I think health inspection authorities in Iceland have started to take this more into account. Of course, increased inspection involves increased cost for the water facilities, which may prove a challenge, particularly for smaller facilities. 600,000 cubic meters. The amount of fresh water available per person per year in Iceland one of the highest per capita figures in the world. 15. 
The number of registered waterborne outbreaks in Iceland between 1998 and 2017, affecting 8,000 people and leading to over 500 registered illnesses. All of them occurred in small water supplies. In July 2010, the United Nations General Assembly officially recognized the human right to water and sanitation. That milestone is very dear to me and is very important, Mari explains. The goal is to ensure that water is not defined as a commodity, rather as a public good, and that all regulations are based on that. It was the impetus for a lot of changes. When it comes to ensuring the public's right to water, Maria says Icelandic legislation is quite clear. The Water Act places the needs of households in first place, followed by agriculture and then business operations. This means that legislation ensures that the public need will always come before private companies' use of water. This applies regardless of who owns the land. Let's say that you live on land owned by someone else, and you need water, Maria speculates, and they have some water you could use. You have permission to use that water as long as you are not interfering with their household water needs and pay for any damage that this use inflicts. The right of the public and households to water is fairly strong in the legislation. On the other hand, the risk of exploitation of water resources always exists to some extent. As Maria says, we are one of the richest countries in the world when it comes to water resources. I think we're second or third on the list per capita. But I don't think that land is really that expensive in Iceland. And when you buy land, you own everything below it. You own the minerals it may contain, you own the geothermal water, and you own the fresh water. That's how it is according to Icelandic legislation. Of course, you have to apply for a license from the National Energy Authority if you're using a certain amount of water. And you are subject to an environmental assessment. It's not only locals that are interested in utilizing Iceland's plentiful water. A majority of Icelandic Glacial's parent company, Icelandic Water Holdings, was recently sold to foreign investors. In response to the sale, Iceland's Minister of Commerce, Lilja Alfredsdóttir, has asked the company for information on the new owners, stating that ministers have the power to veto sales that may threaten national security. She pointed out that Iceland's constitution currently does not include an article on natural resources and stressed the importance of adding one as soon as possible. 94%, the proportion of Iceland's population that gets their drinking water from 82 municipally-run water facilities. One of the looming realities of Iceland's freshwater is that much of it, groundwater included, comes from the country's glaciers. And the glaciers are set to lose one-third of their volume by 2100, according to some studies. Climate change will have other implications for Iceland's plentiful water resources, including extreme weather that could pollute drinking water sources or cause them to dry up. We've already had landslides that have destroyed water wells, Maria says. There's now more risk of forest fires in water protection areas, and that can cause certain chemicals to enter the water. And especially here in Iceland, everything is quite open. Pollutants can easily make it down into the groundwater. We need to think about that and we need to take climate change more into account in the water inspection and risk assessment. In one study where Maria spoke to operators of smaller water facilities, they expressed concern about the effects climate change would have on their water sources. Two of them told me that their water actually comes from the nearby glaciers, Maria said. It melts and filters down into the groundwater. So if the glaciers disappear, that puts their groundwater at risk. 
Extreme weather spurred by climate change means heavier rainfall, which can increase pollutants in groundwater, but also periods of drought, which Iceland has already experienced in recent years. There was a water shortage in East Iceland recently, and people started using questionable water wells, Maria says, because their usual ones were dried up. They had to use ones that were not as well monitored or maintained instead. I spoke to a few health inspectors, and they were also worried about that. Those were their concerns in terms of climate change. Iceland's first river basin management plan covers a six-year period from 2022 to 2027. Because of the extensive nature of the work and the limited amount of time and funding, Marianne says that it was necessary to prioritize some aspects of water management over others. Climate change-related assessments will be implemented into the next RBMP, as will more research on groundwater in Iceland. We still have to do more work, and more in-depth work, when it comes to groundwater, Marianne says. When we have more extremes in the weather, it'll be even more important to monitor the groundwater and whether it's replenishing itself enough. Water Act, 1923, number 15, June 20th, last amended in 2012. Article number 10. Order of access to water on property is as follows in order of importance. 1. Household needs. 2. Agricultural needs. 3. The need of commercial operations on the land, other than agricultural operations, such as industry and business. 4. Irrigation needs. 5. Energy needs. According to Marianne, Icelanders are still not always aware of the wealth of water around them. I think we're used to having a lot of good quality water, and we use a lot of it, she says. But I think we're becoming more aware of how what we do in our daily lives can impact the water around us. That the soap we use to wash our car can end up in a neighboring stream, or that what we flush down the toilet ends up in the ocean. Everything goes into the water, and the water takes in everything. Today, Iceland's water may appear to spring from an endless supply, but that supply cannot be taken for granted. That's why managing our wealth of water is crucial. As Maria says, it's really the most important thing of all, for the public, us regular people, and for our descendants. Well, thank you for that, Yelena. Thank you. Um, so we, we do take water for granted in Iceland, would you say? I think we do. Uh, we leave it running and, you know, at least I've noticed that people do that around here. And, you know, we're so accustomed to having these huge swimming pools uh, full of water and, you know, taking long showers. And I think most people still don't really, can't really imagine it as a finite resource. Yeah. And, and you've had the benefit of traveling quite widely and living abroad. Do you see a noticeable difference in how the Icelanders think of their water as compared to other people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I grew up in Canada. We also have quite an abundance of water there. So there's definitely some similarities there. And, you know, water is used for energy there as well. And so energy costs are low, uh, relatively low, just like in Iceland. Um, but I lived in Mexico for a brief period. And um, in Mexico, where I lived, I couldn't drink the tap water. So we had to buy and carry our own drinking water home. And so I've lived in a situation where um, where I learned basically that having clean drinking water that comes out of your tap is, is not something that's a given necessarily. 
Right. And uh, I mean, the article delves into the River Basin Management Plan, which is, uh, as you noted, a six-year strategy for protecting and preserving the water in Iceland. Did you actually read the report or parts of it? Yeah, I went through the report and um, I mean, it had some really interesting uh, uh, graphs and maps. That's one of the things that I think I'll, I'll take away with me uh, from the research for this article, just seeing visually how many rivers uh, run across Iceland. I mean, it was it was like a, it was like a an anatomical diagram of a person, you know, where you see all like the veins and arteries in the whole body. That's that's how many rivers there are just across the entire country. Um, and, you know, same with lakes. And then we've got this coastal water. So, you know, it's it's just really incredible to see just how widespread um, the water is across the country and just what, it, what an abundant resource it is. And yeah, I did, I did read the report as well. Yeah. Very nice. And, and, um, one of the things that I'm usually interested in discussing these articles is is whether the reporter walks away with uh, a kind of new view on the subject that they're studying. Did you have that kind of experience? Are you, is there maybe something, one thing that really stood out or something that changed the way you perceive or, you know, handle water after writing? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing that really struck me was how our evaluation of how clean Iceland's water is, is largely based on modeling, not on actual data collection. Just the realization that there's actually so much water, there's so many rivers, so many different bodies of water in Iceland that it's impossible to monitor all of them. I mean, to send a person to every single one on a regular basis, take samples, you know, analyze those samples, that's just not something that we're able to do. So we can assume, based on some data and based on you know still scientific reasoning that that most of the water is clean but to me i think it's it's something that raises some doubts about well what if what if some polluting event happens in in a body water that's maybe not monitored or that's far away from human sources you know it's not likely but it could happen and how long would it take us to find out right and did you delve into any of the sort of recent um, cases where this has been the case. I remember we wrote about something last year uh, in the West Fjords where I think there was um, some kind of oil container under underground that started leaking into uh, drinking water. Did you, um, did you review any of the, I think you mentioned about 17 for the past 20 decades where something like this has occurred? Uh, what did what those statistics in the article refer to are waterborne disease outbreaks. So I looked into those a little bit in terms of where drinking water has carried some kind of bacteria or virus that has made people sick. Um, I didn't look as much into the kind of environmental um, accidents that have occurred, like the one in the West Fjords, which I believe was a diesel spill. Right, exactly. Um, as well as uh, there was one from a gas pump in the capital area recently as well um, and I think with incidents like this it's important to have a sort of contingency plan in place where, where we can respond and I'm not sure that um, there was a similar contingency plan really for some of these, these recent uh, issues that occurred but of course it's all about prevention as well and that's what I was really interested in looking at in, in this article and um, in terms of drinking water, with this uh, river basin management plan, 
And even prior to that, Iceland has implemented a lot of preventative strategies in, ter in terms of drinking water in particular, uh, where in the water facilities, um, the water is regularly tested. And so when you know, bacteria or viruses kind of come up, it is usually caught uh, very early on and you know, any disease outbreaks are prevented. Uh, but that's not always the case in smaller water supplies. And I think most of us who live here, we go to summer cabins, for example. Some of those have their own water well. Like, for example, my in-law's family cabin has got its own water well. And uh, so it made me think, hmm, maybe I should ask when the last time <laughs> that was inspected was, you know. And, and it's something that's relevant to tourists as well, because if they're traveling around the country, they're going to be, you know, renting maybe a cabin in an area that... that is not connected to the municipal water supplies where all of this monitoring is very well uh, organized and implemented. It might be connected to just a private water supply. And then, you know, you, you do have some level of risk there, which maybe you didn't realize because Iceland has this image of having this all this pure, clean water. Yeah, I think that's something that I took away from the article as well, was that, um, you know, how many of these small bodies of water there are and how usually the quality of this water is, is uh, a lot less um a lot worse than than from those big supplies so yeah i think when i'll be going to a summer cottage in the near future i think um yeah those are the kind of things that you'll start thinking about and i also found it interesting was that as you mentioned that um sort of the effects of climate change on the water supply is something that the current management plan does not take into account but it will be reviewed after the six years which seems a little sketchy. Um, you know, these things are happening very fast. And also, I mean, our water supply is heavily dependent on the glaciers. The glaciers are melting. Um, did you look into any of those sort of bigger questions around the melting of the glaciers and, and the effects of climate change in Iceland? Yeah, I mean, so Iceland currently has, I mean, the largest glacier in Europe by volume. Um, and so even if a third of the glaciers melt by 2100. Um, I mean, considering that we have one of the highest uh, amounts of, of water, fresh water per capita in the world, I think in terms of the amount of water, you know, at least for the next hundred years or, or more, you know, we should still be all right if <laughs> the population remains around the same numbers. But of course, I was also uh, interested to hear that Climate change is already affecting our water sources in terms of through things that, that Maria mentioned, like landslides that have um, destroyed water wells, or just periods of drought that we've had in recent years that uh, we all remember and have been in the news and you know have affected other things like agriculture. You know, water wells do dry up, and then um, I think yeah, it's definitely something that could be criticized. The fact that this first uh, river basin management plan did not prioritize climate change research. But on the other hand, uh, because it was the very first one that Iceland was writing, there was probably a, a huge amount of groundwork that needed to be covered in order to do any kind of more advanced analysis, like something that you know climate change projecting would require. So um, I'm assuming that this first plan really had to kind of lay the groundwork of kind of define, okay, you know, start from the basics. Where where are the bodies of water? You know, <laughs> map everything out. How can we evaluate them and and so on? So um, yeah, it's it's a it's a huge thing that covers the entire country. And as I was mentioning, so many different institutions, um, both private and public, and it really is 
um, a huge amount of, of work and coordination that's required. But one of the things that Marianne did say was that she did feel as if everybody was on the same page. Everybody sees the value in protecting Icelandic water. Um, the question is, you know, are we doing that well enough? Are we doing it extensively enough? Um, are we acting quickly enough to address the potential risks? Right. And yeah, like you say, if if it's a matter of triage and uh, given the abundance of water that we have in Iceland and sort of the growth projections that, I mean, it makes sense that you, uh, as far as climate change goes, that maybe you, you put that on the back burner for the time being while you're mapping out these things. Um, uh, I was also interested, I mean, as we know, uh, we do quite the research for these articles and there are a lot of times when there are some things that don't make it into the article. Was there anything that you would have liked to have included or something that you had to cut for the sake of length or? Hmm. That's a good question. I think that I would have been interested in going more into detail in terms of the commercial kind of possibilities of Icelandic water, which I touched on a little bit with um, Icelandic Glacial, I believe the company's called. Right. Yeah. And uh, just the fact that this brand is now considered the most valuable brand in Iceland. And I feel like it's a brand that at least is not so much on my radar. I mean, maybe we see their their water bottles on Iceland air flights and, and that sort of thing, but um, made me aware that perhaps they're bigger abroad than than they are in Iceland. And I think that's something that we need to think about looking in the future of if we're going to be selling Icelandic water abroad, is that something that should be regulated? How should that be regulated? Um, as the article points out, Icelandic legislation is very clear that household needs come before commercial needs. And again, because we have such an abundance of water, the, the operations of Icelandic glacial are really quite small in, in kind of context of the entire country and even their, their own municipalities' water supply where they operate. Uh, however, of course, if there are foreign investors investing in Icelandic water, uh, maybe that's something that needs to be reviewed. And I mean, the Minister of Trade herself suggested that there is an importance in, in placing a uh, an article in the constitution that covers, you know, resources. So definitely something to be looked at sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's uh, one for the future. Um, and on a lighter note, um, just in terms of practicality, we have a lot of uh, tourists who visit Iceland uh, every year. And one of the big sort of, one of the more common things that Icelanders sort of shake their heads at is whenever they see foreign visitors, uh, you know, buy bottle bottled bottled water in the stores. Do you have any uh, advice, uh, practical advice for travelers <laughs> coming to Iceland <laughs> well, as far um, as it's concerned? I would say you generally really don't need to worry about the, the the tap water in Iceland, even in the smaller water supplies. I mean, these outbreaks, generally speaking, that, that are mentioned in the article, they're still very rare. Um, so I would say drink the tap water, try it, enjoy it. It's among the best in the world, in my opinion. Um, but maybe stick stay away from uh, drinking directly from surface water, like rivers. That's something I've done myself, because I was told it was, you know, relatively safe. And uh, 
And it was interesting in the research of this article to hear an expert say, actually, maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had this moment as well with my two kids the other day where we were walking uh, around where we live in Hapnavirr and there's this famous stream, brook that runs through town and, and I was teaching them, you know, trying to teach them about science and water and stuff and I was like, oh yeah, you can uh, you, you drink this water and, and then I sort of leaned down and was like, no, wait, this is probably not the kind of thing, <laughs> even though I did this as a kid. Uh, yeah. I mean, is it, I, I remember like on this question, like looking this up and, and trying to talk to some experts and my takeaway at the time was like, oh, well, I mean, surface water out in nature away from towns and municipalities is fine, but maybe not you know, in one of the big towns in Iceland. Yeah, is I think that's that's the main kind of uh, thing to, that's the main thing to, to think about. If, if it's far from an area with a lot of traffic, for example, if you're hiking in the highlands and, and you're hiking over a river, uh, it's probably going to be safer to drink the water, to fill your water bottle up there, and, and hikers do, and especially if you're in a situation where you need water and you're on a multiple day hike and it's the only only place you can access it. Um, I think that's pretty standard for, for hikers to just fill their water bottles in, in the rivers. Um, but you may want to avoid doing that, you know, in, in Atledar, in the center of Reykjavik or or so on, because it's it is exposed to more um, yeah, there's just more industry around it. There's more urban activity and traffic and so on. And as Marianne was saying, I mean everything that we do around the bodies of water influences them and you know eventually goes into them yeah and i think it's uh, maybe on a final note I, like you mentioned um the title of the article is a wealth of water and i was just reflecting on this yesterday and have been reflecting because i've written a few pieces on swimming pool culture and marine safety and the like that i mean water is such a huge aspect of icelandic culture i mean from the popularity of the swimming pools to the fact that we've been a seafaring nation since settlement. Um, yeah, I, I think there's just something really important about the connection between water and Icelanders. Yeah, I would agree. Definitely. It's such a big part of the culture and the image. I think that both Icelanders and people abroad have of Iceland, whether or not they realize it consciously. So yeah, definitely something that I was happy to kind of delve deeper into and, and learn a little bit more about. Yeah, and I mean, you opened the article with that nice image of, of the waterfalls and the and the spa, spas. and the, So yeah, I think we've got that pretty much covered. So um, yeah, on that note, thank you so much for sharing the article and talking to us today, Yelena. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review the oldest continuously running English-language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.